Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. I'm your host, Terry Yuan, and this series of episodes on beauty and lifestyle is sponsored by Masami, a premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. Masami is good for you with no bad ingredients and is vegan and cruelty-free. Masami's ultra-hydrating formula leaves your hair healthy, shiny, and manageable. Be sure to follow Engendered Podcast on Instagram to learn about the Masami Travel Pack Giveaway with their Makabu-infused shampoo, conditioner, styling cream, and shine serum. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Lynn Power, the CEO of Masami, a vegan, cruelty-free, and botanically hydrated hair products company. Prior to founding Masami, Lynn worked as an advertising executive and played a leading role in the launch of such brands as Clinique's Even Better and L'Oreal's Clinical. We speak with Lynn today about her experience as a former CEO of J. Walter Thompson's New York office in the wake of Me Too and the company's own sexual discrimination lawsuit, the role of the advertising industry in shaping consumer opinions and behaviors, and her subsequent decision to disrupt the beauty industry through her new venture with Masami. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you. I know it's been a while since you were at JWT. Yes. But I wanted to start with your experience there. Sure. As New York CEO, you worked there for a couple of years before the company erupted into a crisis, a media crisis. Yes, you could say that. Yes. (laughs) What was your experience prior to your role at JWT in managing these kinds of situations like sexual harassment, discrimination, hostile work environment? It's a really good question. Um, You know, the advertising industry is not known for being super accepting and diverse in that sense. Um, And I grew up in the industry in a time when there were a lot of men above me um, pretty consistently as my bosses. But I have to say I was fortunate in that I only had personally a few experiences myself where now I would look back and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I put up with that. But at the time, you just kind of sucked it up and soldiered on because that's what you did. You know, I'm talking about the 90s, you know, early 2000s. It's like you didn't have any role models of women who were doing anything differently. You know, you just kind of accepted that there were going to be some some bad apples and you kind of did your job. Prior to JWT, were there friends of yours who worked in the industry who shared stories and experiences where they felt uncomfortable and yet they had to sort of tolerate the experience because they putting their career and financial stability ahead of their safety and comfort? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if you actually pull most women my age who worked in advertising, you would get those stories. Everyone has a story for for the most part. I I don't want to make a blanket statement like that, but, uh, you know. It would be hard to find someone who has not spent, you know, 20 or 30 years in the, in the business who does not have a story. Obviously, there are degrees of bad to worse, right? There's, there's stories when I hear that I'm absolutely horrified. I mean, I never felt like I was personally in danger, but it was more the overt dressing me down as a woman kind of things that would happen. Um, on a fairly regular basis, or, you know, mansplaining to me, 
or talking down or overt sexual comments, those things that would happen a lot. Well, I'm going to infer that just by joining the advertising industry, there's a almost tacit acceptance of sexism because it's known for selling images of women and sexuality in order to get consumers to buy products. Um, I guess I have to agree with that because it is the sort of reality now when you look back. But at the time when you're kind of, you know, starting out again, I'm going back 20, 30 years, nobody talked about it like that. You know, no, nobody had the awareness or the knowledge or the data behind it to be able to say that this is kind of the way the industry is portraying women. So you just kind of accepted that that's what it was. I mean, there were very few of these conversations, if any, at the time that I can remember. So it doesn't make it okay. I just think it was a different time of what we were sort of comfortable with or uncomfortable with. And I think now we're in a space which is great, which people feel that they can actually have these conversations and talk much more openly than they could before. One of the taglines for our podcast is, well, not taglines, but the ways that I describe the goal of the podcast is to build a cultural literacy around abuse and abuse of power and all yeah. of its manifestations. So would you say that we have matured as a society where we have that cultural literacy and access to the vocabulary? to identify things that happened to us that we didn't think was either unethical or maybe illegal. And now because we have the vocabulary, we're able to name it and to do something about it. I would say, and this is just my opinion, I think we've scratched a surface on, for sure, on the vocabulary and the ability to identify and be aware now of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Like, I think that's kind of happening. But as far as the action around it, I'm not sure we've gotten to the level yet of where we need to be. And I also think when I look at the advertising industry, you know, it's, it's hard to change perceptions of that are deep, deep, kind of deeply embedded in the way we create advertising. And I think, you know, we, when I was at J. Walter Thompson, we had partnered with the Gina Davis Institute to do a study on the perceptions of gender roles in advertising. It was actually, hor the results were horrifying. But one of the things that we took away from that is you can't just put the results out there and expect people to like figure it out, how to change it. It starts with things like the creative brief. You know, you actually have to change the target audience in the creative brief so it doesn't say multitasking mom which would lead a creative to cast multitasking mom in a negative way. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I think um, a lot of these conversations have to happen. It's almost like you have to triangulate and do multiple things around them in order to get the action. And it's just not as simple as calling it out at the end. You know what I mean? When you see it and you're like, oh, that's no good. Um, it's quite hard. And you have to have a lot of people along the way with checks and balances who are who are questioning, is that, you know, why do we have to have a male lead in that um, role in the in the in the commercial? Why does the mom have to look like she's cooking and the dad looks like he has a, you know, a good job like those kind of just things that stereotypes that, you know, in the past we would just fall into and nobody would think twice. 
I think that's what the awareness is doing is it's at least hopefully making us question those decisions a little bit more. Do you happen to remember some of the results of that Gina Davis study? Yeah, so I think I think the big glaring one is that men are represented twice as much as women in ads. They're also seen as funnier. Ha ha, no, no, you know, men get the humor in the ads. Um, women were significantly, I think it was like, I can't remember the exact stat, maybe it was six times more likely to be in skimpy clothing than men. Um, men were given more words to say, and the words they were given were deemed to be more intelligent. Women were less likely to be to have an identifiable career. Like it goes on and on. So the the data was pretty, really disappointing. And you know it was based on the Can Winner um, database. So you kind of look at that and you're like, well, this is supposed to be the best of the best. This is the 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 advertising that we all deem really great, right? So it's like, wow, <laughs> if the best advertising is this slanted and skewed, you know, imagine doing this research among a broader, a broader pool, and it's probably going to be even that much worse. Um, Did the research come out before or after the sexual harassment lawsuit? The research came out in 2017, which was after, if I recall. Yeah. So was the lawsuit in any way an impetus for conducting the research? No, we had been, it takes a while to do it. And we had been talking with that Gina Davis about about this and doing it for our industry. And then, of course, when you have that kind of public lawsuit, you do want to make sure that you are not just talking about change, but that you're actually trying to empower it. And so this was an easy way for us to lean in and sponsor this research because it's, again, it's about awareness, data, knowledge. Gina talks a lot about how you need the data to make the change, and the data is what is really eye-opening, I think, because, you know, when you just anecdotally talk about, oh, men are better represented in advertising, people kind of nod their heads, but when you have data to say, no, this is exactly how that translates, you can't refute it. I mean, it's real. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology for collecting that data? Um, So that's more in the Gina Davis Institute's camp, to be honest. But they basically, I know they work with Google on um, using AI to be able to scan and tag. um, In their case, they started with film, and we applied it to advertising so that they can identify genders, they can identify words, they can identify time and you can and then and then you can kind of apply that and it's uh, you know I know that they've tested the accuracy of their um, algorithm as well and it's really good so I think it's better than if a human eye were to look at thousand ads and do it that way so I feel like the data is robust and sound but again it's like what it shows is pretty disheartening yeah. <laughs> turning back to the lawsuit yeah yeah <laughs> what was your perspective as a leader of the New York office in terms of how people were responding to the lawsuit? Was there confusion? Was there an opportunity to really educate your team around the concept of sexual harassment and discrimination? Were they driven by emotions rather than facts? Or in other words, was it like factionalism in terms of their response? 
Yeah, I mean, anything, anytime anything like that happens that's so um, kind of surprising in public because the way we found out about it was in the New York Post, it's, it's hard for anyone to process, right? And so there was definitely a lot of confusion. There were definitely a lot of questions. People had their own opinions about what happened. As the leader, I had to be really neutral about it because ultimately... These are allegations. They haven't been proven, but at the same time, you need to support the person that's coming forward because it's hard to do. It's hard to do as a woman. She was really one of the very first people in our industry to come forward with that kind of allegation. So, you know, you want to give her the support, and she was continuing to work at J. Walter Thompson, um, but at the same time, you know, you need the, the, the investigation to happen. You need you need it to play out in the legal way that it has to play out and get to the conclusion it needs to get to. And what we did is just tried to be as transparent as we could in the context of a lawsuit, which is difficult. But we also were able to, and this was the silver lining of the lawsuit, is we were able to lean in heavily to diversity and inclusion, um, which previously was not really something the company talked a lot about. Now, we had a reason to talk about it. We brought in actually a diversity and inclusion expert. We did training. Um, we started a, um, a female uh, leadership program for creatives. We had one of our senior creative women step in and volunteer to take that over. We put a number of things in place that I think were great um, that may or may not have happened had that lawsuit not happened because, again, it's a little bit of like, you know, if the pressure isn't on to do the change, then it's easy to just let things be status quo. So that was actually a good thing that came out of it, I think. So when you say that it was, it was good, the diversity and inclusion expert and the training and the leadership program, what was the process for assessing that it was a positive yeah, outcome? No, we, we were doing, as you can imagine, like cultural surveys on our office and people's sentiments and perspectives fairly regularly to just keep tabs on that so that we were not misstepping, right? Like, because good intentions, you know, you can, you can do something thinking like it's, oh, everyone's going to love this and it falls flat and it turns out like, oh, that wasn't the right thing to do. So it was important for us to make sure that things were also being interpreted the way that they were intended to be by, by the people receiving them on the other end. And, you know, I, I had a lot of anecdotal feedback on the sort of women's leadership on that piece on the creative side, you know, because this was at a time when there's still a void of creative, female creative leaders in the industry. So, again, should it have happened Regardless of the lawsuit, absolutely. But it was like the lawsuit gave us a reason to not just do these things, but to get some funding for them, for them and to really get the agency to rally behind them. The reason I ask these questions is because usually when these kinds of programs come into play, it's in response to some sort yeah. of crisis, right? And unfortunately, corporations, and I think in general, American globally, but especially American corporations, the value of building in equality and diverse voices and cultural you know, diversity and competency isn't something that's thought about in the beginning of building a company. And so when it happens, especially in the context of a crisis, people are going to be, of course, agreeable to participate because they have to. Mm. 
um, but it'd be a little bit different if it was part of building a culture with in, in a sort of safer environment, um, less um, attenuated environment, and people had the freedom to really speak their mind about whether these mm. initiatives were effective or not. And those are the times when people are, especially different, you know, different races and, and different abilities, people come and say, we want something that's actually going to be sustainable. It's not just, you know, this program that's going to be present now, but what are we doing about not just recruitment, but retention and um, mobility within the company and those kinds of things, mentorship, et cetera, right, in yep. a su sustainable way. So do you happen to know if any of these initiatives are still continuing? I really don't, but I do think it was a wake-up call for the industry, not just for JWT. And I do think JWT had a pretty good culture before. So in, in that case, actually, people felt the culture was quite inclusive um, and very diverse, actually. Um, so these were these were not like to fix a broken culture. They were to enhance and be opportunistic about the fact that we can do some things now to even make it, you know, better. I would say, as the industry goes, though, um, you know, when you have when you have a wake up call, and then it wasn't just JWT. There have been several um, high profile kind of incidents, right, and and things that have happened. It's an opportunity for any of these companies to improve and learn and evolve, and hopefully they have. I mean, I do think, from what I hear again anecdotally, you know, the idea of now diversity and inclusion training is pretty much a norm. Like, it's, it's not the exception anymore. So that's great, right? So I think these things are now becoming embedded in orientation and part of the way the agency just functions and... And hopefully that is sustainable, right? Um, and again, it's about awareness and it's about giving people the knowledge and the tools and, you know, the ability to, to be able to impact some change. And so, yeah. What, what about diversity in terms of helping your clients on the product or service side expand their target audience and market? So that they're not just yeah focused on one kind of consumer. I think um, that's a great opportunity, and you know that's where you know the agency insights and strategists can really play a big role because it's really not just about the creative output again; it's about the input, right? And being able to dimensionalize people in a much more robust way. Um, I mean, a lot of now that advertising has become quite analytical and you can do personalized marketing and one-on-one -on -one marketing, you know, you can get pretty granular about how you think about people. But ultimately, some of those things still need to roll up into, you know, you're talking to people a certain way and there's certain messages. So I think, yeah, get, continuing to mine for human insights, not just stereotypical kind of gender definitions, that's that's always a good thing in our business and behavioral insights as well um for sure so when you were uh helming a jwt at the peak of the crisis there was also various other things that were happening in the industry that I, i'm guessing mm -hmm. probably didn't <laughs> that didn't help um including maura donegan's media men list Mm -hmm. And then subsequently, the Diet Madison Avenue anonymous Instagram account. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts around the ways in which these lists 
may help contribute to transparency and accountability and the ways in which they may actually inhibit it. I mean, it's really anonymity. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Because, you know, on one hand, you need to give people an opportunity to have a voice, right? And it's hard to have a voice for many people if you're not anonymous in these types of situations and speak out against someone, especially if that person is pretty high profile. So the way, you know, the lists um, can really help get those, you know, identify those offenders, if you will. I think the danger of it is, does it become um, an unfair, whatever you want to call it, but is it truly based on an an unfair and unbiased um, and objective point of view, or is it, you know, a few people who may have had a particular experience that may or may not be accurate. You know what I mean? You don't really know. Like, so again, it's not transparent. So you don't really know the facts behind it. You're just sort of hoping that the facts are right. Was there any personal knowledge that you had to assess its accuracy? And again, hard to really hard to do for me, like, like from your anecdotes of friends and, you know, colleagues. I had gone to the trouble of doing digging on it. I'm sure I could have found because you know, we're such a small industry that you can find like, you know, one degree separation from just about anyone. But I did not, I didn't go to the, to that level of like scrutiny to go through and see like, has anyone had an experience like this with this person or that person? Um, but, you know, you just, you know, you hope that the people coming forward are, are, are truthfully coming forward and representing, you know, what really happened, because if they're not, then it, it makes it harder, I think not easier for, for other women, actually. Two of the guests that we had on our show yeah. include the founder of a website called Better Brave, and another one is the found, uh, CMO, I believe, of an app called Not Me. And both are targeted towards helping corporations and individuals who are targets of workplace discrimination and misconduct to come forward anonymously. Yep. And I'm wondering what you think of those kinds of technologies. Are they helpful to corporations? Are they helpful? Does, does it create a, a field of openness and accountability because it's a third party that's sort of a, has access to the data? I've got to believe it does. Just my gut would tell me because, you know, we had like a an anonymous, what if you want to call it, like phone line at WPP where you could call and anonymously you know, post your complaint. But I think because it was within the company, I don't know how many people feel like it was truly right. So I think the third party validation, if you will, or objectivity might be a a very helpful tool to allow people to be able to come forward. And then, and then, you know, there's the question of what do you do with the information and how do you vet it and, and deal with it, but at least you have it, right? At least, you know, Um, So, yeah, I would think that's probably a very good thing. So in your bio for Masami, you refer to your love of building teams, reinventing cultures, and disruption. Yes. I guess that's where Masami comes in. Yes. Can you tell us how Masami is disrupting the beauty industry? Yeah, sure. So, so after JWT, I left to um, do my own thing, which has been really liberating. 
and um, launched Masami. It's actually launching now. So I think our official launch will be February 13th. And we wanted to create a really efficacious product that is clean, which um, in hair care is quite hard to do. So we took out sulfates, parabens, phthalates. People like the chemicals um, in terms of the sensorial experience that's in a lot of our hair care brands. 90% of hair care brands in the U.S. actually have toxic chemicals in them. And so when you take them out, a lot of brands that are clean in hair care feel sort of unfulfilling. Um, so we wanted to really make products that were very luxurious feeling and worked, but also didn't have that bad stuff in it. So um, our products are all about hydration, and we use this hero ingredient called makabu, which is grown in northeast Japan. It's an ocean botanical, and it basically acts like a sponge for your hair to to give you this massive, massive hydration. What do you mean when you refer to other products as being unfulfilling? Like when you ha other products on the market that have taken out the sulfates, parabens, phthalates, a lot of times they don't have the technology or they haven't replaced them with substitute naturally derived ingredients that will give you that thickness. So they'll be kind of watery or they don't suds at all. They're, you know, and so our products are our shampoo is low sudsing, but it's not no sudsing. And our products are thick and they're very rich and they're very hyd hydrating, which, again, a lot of clean hair care products aren't. The, that was the kind of like Venn diagram we needed to hit is like, how do you make them good for you and also feel luxurious? And what are the benefits of hydrating products versus less hydrating? So hydration is the number one unmet need in consumers for hair. And when you solve hydration, you solve pretty much any other hair problem somebody has. So their hair is shinier, it's healthier, it's more manageable, it has more volume, it's fuller. So that was for us very clear. We need to make products that are super hydrating. I think the challenge is you, you know, you want to do them if you can so that there's you know, deliver massive hydration without being heavy and weighing your hair down because you end up then almost defeating the purpose. You give people these really hydrated, moisturized hair, but it doesn't, it's not light. It doesn't have that fullness. So our products are formulated to be light. Our conditioner feels light, but it's, again, massive hydration. Same with our styling cream. It's whipped, so it doesn't feel sticky or greasy. It feels light, um, and you can use it and get, you know, you, you really feel the difference. And What about Makabu? That's the seaweed that yeah. you source from Japan. That's right. Are there other products out there that use this ingredient? Not in the West, although there is a skincare in New Zealand that has it, um, but really nothing here. Yeah, my partner is married to a Japanese man and would go to his hometown and saw that his family, who's like looks so young and you know they have the longest life expectancy there, they would not only eat makabu and come, it would come right out of the bay, they would grind it down and put it in their skincare and hair care products. Um, so he was intrigued. Um, he found a chemist. His background is beauty. He spent 20 years at Clairol and doing all kinds of things. So, you know, he found a great indie natural chemist who was able to work on this. It took about 10 years to figure out the formulations because, as I said, like, taking out the bad stuff, putting in the good stuff. It's not easy. It takes a really 
long time to figure out. Wow. So you've been working on this for 10 years? He, he has Oh, he been. was working on yeah, this. Okay. I, I met him about a year and a half ago, and the products were almost done. We did a little bit more tweaking to make them even cleaner, but like they were pretty much there. And they're really excellent. And um, yeah, and then we decided, okay, this is too good to pass up. We have to do this together. So I'm guessing this makabu is different from the seaweed that we eat in the Japanese restaurant. Not necessarily. It's actually part of kombu um, and wakame. Wakame is like the big seaweed that grows. It's the bottom flowering part. So it looks kind of freaky a little bit because um, it looks sort of spiraled. Um, but it's the nutrient-dense kind of um, almost flowering plant, if you will, that sits at the bottom of the wakame seaweed. I'm sure that there are some. You can eat it, absolutely. Um, in fact, James, we were at the Indie Beauty Expo last week, and we had makabu in this vase because um, you can get these dried pieces, and then it blows up. And then when we were done with the event, he made soup. <laughs> so very sustainable. <laughs> In terms of sustainability, that's obviously one of the benefits yep. of your product. What is the sustainability of the sourcing of this product and your ability to maintain a supply of it long term? Yeah, so we get it directly from Northeast Japan from a family-owned seaweed manufacturer. Um, they harvest it, they dry it, they grind it down, and we get it from them. Part of our brand is making sure that we're giving back, right? So we take from the ocean, but we should also give back to the ocean. So we formed the Masami Institute with the idea that we're going to be able to give back to rebuild the ocean ecosystem. And we have partnered with a particular researcher who lives in Atsushi, Japan, who dives into the bay and monitors what's happening with the seaweed, the growth, the sea urchins, which are an infestation there and have been a real problem since the tsunami happened. And we're basically helping fund his research as part of our brand purpose. What about in terms of the products, the um, packaging itself? Yeah, it's, a, it's another good question because I hate that they're plastic. I think the challenge is when you have shampoo and conditioner, you, know, you can't be in glass bottles for obvious reasons because you don't want to be injuring people in the shower. We are actually doing two things. One is we're going to have a refill program where you can um, return your bottles and have them filled. But secondly, we are creating a 34-ounce ceramic um, refillable bottle for our shampoo and conditioner that's beautiful, simple, will sit in your shower, and you can refill it. And people have said to me, but ceramic breaks too. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't have shards of, like, it doesn't have the same level of danger that glass has. So I think we're willing to live with that to make the refillable option a reality. When you say return, you mean mail it back or go or to a physical store that you're partnering either. with? So we're going to have the option to do either. Now, of course, the physical location is New York City. So if you're outside New York City, you don't have the benefit of that. And there's a store I actually found in L.A., but I have to talk to them and see if they'll take our products but where they do that. They do the refills. So right now, it's, it's more of a mailing thing, which, again, there's carbon footprint issues with that. But at least I feel like it's a way to somewhat resolve the plastic um, single-use bottles, which, again, none of us love. Well, Package Free Shop in Brooklyn yeah. in, uh, is a possible partner, I would suggest. Ooh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'll check them out. Thank you. Thanks for the tip.
All right. Well, I can't not talk about with you, given that we just are two days after the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> cannot talk about what just happened in the Super Bowl because during halftime, I'm not a football fan, by the way. I'm not either. So yeah. there. So I, one of my favorite shows is Dawson's Creek. And I think Dawson was the one who said that he didn't, he was saying something about some character in the show and how I think it was his sister before he thought that she was going to be a, a girl. And he said, I hope she, you know, my, my sibling doesn't grow up to play sports because organized sports is all about conformity. Mm. Um, and so in the wake of, you know, the NFL's controversy with Colin Kaepernick mm. and other very pointed controversies, this past weekend, the most recent controversy was Shakira and J-Lo performing. I don't know if you've had a chance to see I the news see about the response to their performance. I haven't really seen the response because I've seen a few things where it's, again, pros and cons, right? Like there are people that are like, I wouldn't let my daughters watch it. And then I had other people I saw on Twitter that were like, it was very empowering. I mean, J-Lo's 50. I think Shakira's in her, I don't know, mid-40s, right? So like, you go, girl. Like, so there was that side of it, too. Um, and I kind of take a little bit of that stance because these are strong women. They're not pushovers. I mean, to have a 50-year-old woman out there doing her thing and she's amazing, not just J-Lo, but both of them, like, I, I would like to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You've been in the advertising industry and now you're starting a sustainable beauty product, yeah. beauty product brand. Has your attitude changed? over this time period with regard to advertisers' roles and consumer products' roles in defining positive gender yeah, roles no, and values? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think for us, even as we were thinking about representing the brand, you'll see we really focus on hair. Most of our hair shot underwater, and we made sure we had a guy because, you know, first, our products are gender neutral. But again, like, we should be showing him the same way we show the women. Right. So I, I do think it is just about being more conscious of, of that and having more aware, awareness overall of the images you're putting out there, for sure. I have to say, so when I started reading these critiques of the two artists, I was actually less, I mean, first of all, it was very hypocritical, I thought, because cheerleaders, as we know, were less clothing (laughs) than these two women, than these two artists. And obviously there was a racial element because both are Latina women and they had made political statements with the children in cages, which somehow, uh, and Puerto Rico, which somehow was translated by a certain group of people into sexual trafficking. Wow, I didn't see that. <laughs> so yeah, and that was very strange. But to me, so, so Rihanna actually turned it down because she was protesting the NFL. Interesting. And, and so there was that, the fact that they, they participated, right. right? That they're basically complying to our societal norms of, yeah, I get that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a huge platform to make a statement, right? On the other hand, I also want to read just to um, get your feedback, this activist, an African-American activist on Twitter, Breen Newsom Bass, uh, she said, 
that the Super Bowl is the high holy day of white supremacist capitalism in America, co-sponsored by the NFL, the ad industry, and the military-industrial complex. That's why Kaepernick is banned for protesting police brutality, and Jay-Z had to be paid to lead a campaign of historical erasure. The NFL is the modern-day gladiator sport, a state-sponsored event relying heavily on recruiting men from the underclass to serve as distracting entertainment for the masses. Instead of fighting to the death like in Rome, they play to the point of severe physical and mental injury. The professional industry depends on their existing a pipeline of young black boys who from a very early age are raised with aspirations of being NFL players. Most never will, but their labor feeds the billion-dollar industry from Little League through college, where they play for free. Some players will become millionaires in the process, but most won't. And the primary beneficiaries will always be billionaire white owners who profit from black men injuring themselves and who can swap one player out for another as needed, including banning a player who protests racism. So I totally agree with that statement. Mm. This is the kind of value system that inspires me to do this podcast and Mm. the work that I do is exposing but and holding accountable the systems that we participate in, cultural systems, etc. But I don't fault anyone for participating in the sport or watching it as a fan, but I feel like it's a moment for us to be critical and engaging in dialogue so that we can be aware of what we're consuming. I don't know if you watched the um, the ads, but have you seen any changes in the ads that air during Super Bowl in hmm. terms of its cultural relevance, more diversity, more less tolerance of diversity, and more celebration of diversity? Have you seen any of those changes? In That's the- a good question. I, I I don't. I'd have to go back and kind of like compare almost like to previous years. I do think there's. A very obvious thing that happens in Super Bowl ads, which is everyone tries to be funny, right? Like those are the most, either that or make you cry. The Google ad made, you know, it has the the tear jerk effect or it's like you just have to go kind of all out humor. I mean, there were a lot of B-list celebrities, but that's always the case. So I'd have to go back with the lens of, you know, does this really look like there's been a shift in in that or not. I mean, I think the challenge with the NFL is the the injury piece, right? Like, I don't know if you watched the Aaron Hernandez documentary on Netflix. You know, you really wonder how much of that played a factor in what happened to him and just how hard it is for these guys who get hit over and over and over again. Of course, like, no surprise that there's going to be something wrong with their brains, right? I mean, you can't expect the human body to go through that kind of trauma without some repercussion. So I think that's the piece of the NFL that has to get solved first, because it's pretty shocking when you look at some of the results that have been released about autopsies of players and the brain injuries and things like that. And yet, it ha- to your point, like it's, we act like it's fine and it happens. And, and I think the challenge is, would the public be okay with a game that was not so intense and full on and people smacking each other? Maybe not, you know? So are we creating our own monster? So looking back at your career, working in advertising, being responsible for leading your organization, former organization, through this crisis of really evolution, hopefully, and now as a founder, how have those experiences 
shaped the kind of person, the kind of leader you want to be in building this current company and brand, Masami? Well, we're all about diversity at Masami. My partner is openly gay. My team is completely, completely diverse, not just, you know, ethnically diverse, which they are, but but also different ages. Because I, I, I find that also there's someone my age has to be really open-minded and accepting of somebody who has a lot to give who's 21 or 22. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really, if you're going to sort of say that you're inclusive, it has to work on all levels. I do find, and I'm experiencing it now, ageism is a problem. I had an investor who actually came right out and said, oh, too old. You know, she'll never be successful. She's too old to launch a company now. And I was like, what? You're kidding, right? Like, have you seen how much shit I get done in a day? <laughs> Sorry, I'm maybe not supposed to swear. But, you know, it's, it's kind of that, that is my, sort of the latest um, barrier that I feel like I'm hitting my head against the, the wall. And it's, it actually really annoys me. And that actually is very consistent with investors' perspectives around gender as well as yeah. age, right? Because right. the statistics disprove it. Like founders over 40 are more, are successful, more successful and women are more successful, women right. founders. But yet there's this perception still that they're going to be not giving a return. I know. Uh, hopefully I'll find someone who does not have that issue and will appreciate the experience that we bring and appreciate you know, how we're going to market and building the brand. But it is disheartening when you, know, you hear those things. As we conclude this conversation, at the end of every interview, I always ask my guests a series of questions that I've adapted from inside the actor's studio, the engendered questionnaire. Okay. First question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Oh my God, that's a huge question. <laughs> what is at stake? Humanity? That's what I'll say. <laughs> what gives you hope? Our children, you know, I have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old, and they're incredibly smart and savvy and aware and tolerant, super tolerant. Final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, I think more talking about it and getting awareness, but I think the challenge is I've, I've gone to a lot of conferences in my, you know, last whatever, how many years that are about women and empowerment. And it's like, like I was just at TED Women, and there's like 95% women. And actually, one of the women jokingly said there should be a TED Met. And I kind of agree with that because we talk to ourselves. Where are the men in these conversations? We can't just be having them among ourselves and going, yeah, you go, girl. Like, guys have to be brought in and have to be sharing the learning and sharing the evolution with us. Otherwise, it's just like a one-sided conversation. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us on this conversation. Thank you. It was really fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Masami, the premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. You can find Masami online at lovemasami.com and share your hair at lovemasamihair on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. And you can listen to this podcast on CastBox. Download it for free and listen to anything. CastBox, the best podcast listening app out there.